Well, good morning. It is uh, very, very good to be back here with you after being away for a couple of weeks. Um, we had a great family visit uh, at the Wilcoxon household in uh, Lancaster, Kentucky. We're from Indiana, but my parents live in Kentucky. And uh, that was great, but there's, there's no place like home. And so it was really, really good to be back, uh, and is good to be back, and so uh, it's really good to see you. Uh, our scriptural call to worship is in two parts, uh, and both from books of prophecy. The first is from Isaiah's prophecy. I better get my reading glasses on here so I know you get the right book. Um, Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 40, and the first three verses. And then we'll be turning to Micah, no, Malachi, sorry, Malachi, and the third chapter and the first three verses of Malachi. Hear this from the prophecy of Isaiah, verse 1 through 3 of chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And now the first three verses of Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord Yahweh of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus in worship. We come to express, but we also come to receive. And we pray that you would join us here by your Holy Spirit, by whom you have indwelt every single one of your people. And we now ask that you would also join us in some special way as we gather in the name of Christ, as we worship you, exalt him, and are changed by your word and by your spirit of power. In Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Well, good morning, and welcome particularly to our kids who are eagerly waiting to go to kids' church this morning, but I'm going to make you wait a little while, and we're going to do something a little bit differently this morning. I don't usually look like I'm a megachurch leader, um, <laughs> but um, this morning I, I felt inspired to give a sermon which is really more of a parable. So I'd like for the kids to come up and come up to the front pew. Come on up, guys. And we're gonna, I'm going to tell you guys a story this morning, okay? So come on and sit up in the front pew. Yep, come on, Lachlan and Oren. You guys can sit right here in the front pew. 
I'm going to tell you guys a story. If there's any other kids with us this morning, and if there's any that filter in, you, they can come and, 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 and sit. Now, whoever is the most quiet and the least wiggly during the story this morning is going to get to light the, ad, the first Advent candle of the season. Cool. So we're going to be really quiet, not too wiggly, okay? All right. Now... This morning, I am going to tell a story called The Extraordinary. What's extraordinary mean? Super special, right? Yeah. The Extraordinary, Ordinary Faith of Old George. A parable for Advent. A completely true parable for Advent, not made up. You ready? Old George wasn't always old. No, he became old in the usual way, through long years of experience. Did I say old George? I should have said blind George. Now, blind George wasn't always blind either. He became blind in a very similar way as he had become old, by losing his sight. Did I say blind old George? I meant to say fat George. Now, fat George wasn't always fat. He became fat by, you guessed it, putting on too much weight. Also, he ate too much. And he never exercised. Now, wait a minute. Did I say blind, fat old George? I meant to say blind, fat old George. Well, now I'm going to apologize because I have to use a word that isn't very nice. In fact, it's not a word you should use to describe anyone, but this is an old story. If this were a nice, shiny, modern story, I wouldn't use a word like this, but this isn't exactly a nice story. It's got maggots in it, for one. So it's certainly not shiny, either. It's an old, old story. An old story about blind, fat old George the Cripple. There, I said it. Now, before you try and guess what I'm going to say next, I will tell you that he was not a cripple because he had lost the ability to move. He couldn't move because he had had a stroke. But that's not what crippled him. Actually, it was the stroke that seems to have started the process of... Well, now I'm getting ahead of myself. After his stroke... Sometimes, most of the time, in fact, he could move. But sometimes, he just couldn't. At least, not his whole body. One side of him might just get stuck. Or just his fingers. Which, for old George, was even worse. Sometimes his mind and his mouth, normally so sharp and so nimble, would sputter and stutter. But for months and months at a stretch... Even years, he would be perfectly fine, just his ordinary, fat, old, Georgious self, which didn't bother him even a little. In the last years of his life, blind, fat, old George, crippled George, hobbled to church every Sunday. In fact, he even paid a little fee. It wasn't uncommon in those days to make sure he had his seat saved for him. That way, one of his servants could easily help him to get to his accustomed perch 
and get him comfortably situated every Sunday and sometimes more. Oh, yeah, he had servants. George was rich. Did I not mention that? And just as he wasn't always old or blind or fat, neither was he always richer, rich, though he was never poor, not really. But I won't tell you how he became rich. It's not that it's a secret. It's just kind of boring. Okay, fine, you twisted it out of me. He became rich by making a lot of money. See? Not very interesting. As I was saying, old George was always at church. Other than that, he didn't get out much, at least once he was old and blind and fat and couldn't move around very well, which I suppose is not that surprising. He did, however, go out for one other glorious reason, and that was to perform. Old George, you see, was a musician, a famous musician, the most famous musician in all the land, the most famous musician in every land, to be honest. To put it in new, shiny, modern terms, old George was a star. He'd been a star pretty much since the moment he left home when he was young, clear-sighted, and dashing. You might say he left town to seek his fortune in the wide world, and you'd be right, except since his father had died, he also felt a great burden to provide for his widowed mother, the daughter of a preacher, and his orphaned sister. That could be why he quit school after just one year. I mean, not kindergarten, of course. He didn't quit school right after kindergarten. It was school for big kids, university. But that was also common in those days. Why would you spend all those years and all that money if you knew you could provide for your family right now? What would they put in their stomachs while you filled your head with cannons and statutes and theorems? George, maybe more than most, cared about his people. And George, absolutely more than most, knew who he was, what he was. So he headed to the big city. He earned his living first with his fiddle and then on his special instrument, the organ. And finally, exercising his most precious gift as a composer, he earned and he learned and he learned as he earned. After a few years went by, he left the big city and went abroad to go to where the action was. He flitted like all the finest musicians of his day to Italy, where fortunes were lost and fame was found. And then, just like now, Italy was mad about opera. No, that doesn't mean that opera made them angry. Quite the opposite, in fact. What is opera? Opera is where big, beautiful people sing as big and as beautifully and as, as they can in a big, beautiful language that no one understands. Except Italians, of course. Now, the thing about George is that he did Italian opera better even than the Italian operators. So his fortune grew. And he became even more famous. His family was proud. And along with his letters, he sent not a little money home. But still, he knew in Italy he hadn't found home. So he traveled back 
to the old country. But he discovered that the old country was no longer home for him either. What do you think he did? Bravely, he struck out on a long journey to a new place, old London, great and grand. You might think that youthful, dashing George wouldn't have been interested in old London, decrepit London, isolated London, that a city that didn't have no truck with foreigners and their foreign wives, thank you very much, would hold much appeal for cosmopolitan star, fresh off the boat, who made a splash anywhere he made land. But George was an entrepreneur, which means he liked a challenge. He also had mouths to feed back in the old country, in old London, blinkered London, debauched London, youthful, dashing George sensed an opportunity. A terrible fire had destroyed the single-storied wooden city not long before, and now nice theaters and shiny palaces and modern churches were being builded constantly. A new skyline was erected, an enlightened aspect. New London was of stone, cool, fire-resistant. And a new king, a new George, who was older than old George, so let's call him George I, was about to take the throne. And he had a daughter-in-law, the Princess Caroline, and her husband, Prince George, and they were old George's dear friends from the old country. Old George, in fact, made many friends in London. But you know what? He never took a wife. You could perhaps say that he was married to his work. But in truth, London received him as her own, this mysterious stranger determined to take her by storm. In any case... Old George loved them, loved them all, his work and his friends, London herself. Yes, he must truly have loved her since he never again wandered after he found himself there. London was home. But it was not without its troubles. London was full of bitter jealousies and fierce rivalries. And old George wasn't easy to live with either. Oh, he gave himself to her completely, but... He was hard, always demanding the best, always expecting to be listened to, even while gibbering and jabbering with that tiresome tongue of his. London wearied of him. That means they got tired of him more than once. And London's eye roved around for others who might take his place. When she was bored with him, she searched high and low for bright lights who she thought might outshine him. When she was overwhelmed by him, she favored homely locals who could satisfy her taste for simple, straightforward, easy music. But still, 20 years of fruitful partnership wore on. Then 30 and 35. After so many seasons of bountiful music, George was now old. Old George. And the pressure that comes from being the best at something never went away. He told his friends he may just quit. He had had a good career. He had had a good life. He had given all he had to, save, to serve his art and to please his lady, London. 
his time, his strength, his money, his enormous gifts, and he was spent. And then old George had a stroke. It was not the kind we would normally call a stroke of good luck. It was the kind that makes it hard to speak, hard to move, hard to think, hard to play the organ, hard to write music. Old George stopped working. Old George went back to the old country. He wanted to be healed. He took the waters, which means that he spent time sitting in hot springs, living water warmed by fires below the earth's surface. He also went to the ancient church often and alone in the gloom. He prayed. On the grand old organ, he played. The ancient church reminded him of his childhood of his dear mother, the preacher's daughter, and of the tunes he learned in the church, the tunes in his mother tongue, so different from London, so different from Italy, so from warm waters to dusty dome, he hobbled, played, plunged, and prayed hour upon darkened hour. He found he could speak again. He found he could think again. He found he could play again. And so he came back. Back to Lady London, back to Caroline and George, now George II, the, king, the Queen and King of England, back to all his beloved princesses, their children, his students, and his most devoted fans. But then, guess what happened? His dear friend, his queen, Caroline, departed, which means she died. And old George broke some more. Old George wept. What does that mean? She cri he cried, right? Old George, who had not written a note in months, now poured himself out into music for the queen's funeral. But old George's new music sounded different. It was like the music of his childhood, but teeming with the life and sun of Italy and swirling with notes of noble England, but all together bound up in something else entirely, where before there had been cool stone refined. Now... A fire raged, refining, splitting the rocks a million ways, vaporizing the dross, leaving only gold. Old George had always worked at a furious pace, but now ideas simply swarmed his brain. His friends were delighted with his new fancies, these maggots, as one of them called them, signaled that though his body might be in a state of decay, 
Old George positively wriggled and tingled with joy, his music with the kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious. What had changed in him? Had anything changed? If so, why? Well, people will always argue about this, I suppose, because old George mostly didn't write words. He wrote notes. So we have to look at his old George life and compare it to his young George life and make up our minds. But thankfully, there's lots of old George to consider because after his stroke, old George lived and worked for another 22 years. Now, old George had always gone to church, of course, like everyone else, but young George had mostly written fantastical tales of antique knights and sorceresses. Old George mostly found his inspiration in the Bible. And we're told that old George frequently declared his great pleasure in setting the scriptures to music. How edified he felt in contemplating them. And that means that he knew he was made better when he paid close attention to God's word. And in the Bible stories that old George decided to take on, it looks as if he was working through some sins, some bad stuff that he saw in himself, like jealousy and impatience and pride. And there were also stories that celebrated selfless love and sacrifice and the salvation of his Messiah. And when old George was seen at the church, which I said was often, he made a strong impression on everybody with his humble posture, with the enthusiasm everyone could see in his broken body and voice, declaring his faith, confessing his sins, and asking God for mercy. Young George had always cared for his own, but old George worked to give away his money to strangers, to those who had so much less than he had, to kids who had lost their parents, to old folks who had lost their jobs. He even started a special charity that's still around today. And I wonder if old George came up with the title or laughed at himself when he saw it. He called it the Fund for Decayed Musicians. Young George wrote in the fashionable language of Italian opera, but old George almost always wrote in the language of his adopted home, England. Now everyone in London could always understand him. Everyone in London could hear his bubbling up joy and rejoice alongside him, cry with him when he lost his sight, and be inspired by him to seek the Savior who he had so clearly trusted in, who had made old George new again. Also, old George was not the only one who was strangely warmed in those days. There was another George, a younger George, a poor actor who, so we won't get them mixed up, we'll call Ugly George. Ugly George. Then there were Ugly George's friends, John and Jonathan of Oxford and America, and there were many, many others because God awakened these men in extraordinary ways over a few short years to awaken all England, old England and new England. 
through them all, God set fire to the enlightened. God melted their hearts of stone. Now, old George didn't know any of them, not ugly George, not John of Oxford, certainly not John of America, but God certainly did, and God knew what he was doing. At the exact same time as God was setting fire to the hearts of the crowds of the poor through the extraordinary faith of ugly George and the two Johns, he used old George's ordinary faith to prepare the hearts of millions and billions of people around the world for generations to come. Not long after his stroke, at the very height of this great awakening, a new friend, it was the maggot friend, by the way, thought old George would be just the man to handle the words that he had masterfully stitched together, scraps of scripture that formed a beautiful biblical tapestry, a picture of Jesus, the Messiah. And as old George Frederick Handel, the decayed musician, surveyed his maggot friend's first phrase, a distant trumpet call, a crystal clarion gleamed and glistened in his mind. Comforty. Quickly, confidently, he wrote that down. His eyes continued to scan the words, delighting in Messiah, the source of his comfort. His joy and his hope rose as he saw these words and heard the clarion comfort in reverse. I know. What did he know? That he was blind, fat, old, George the cripple, that he had been a cripple all his life, in fact, even though he had always done his duty, even though he's always attended church, even though he had served his art and had loved his lady London, he now knew that no matter what good he had ever done or that anyone does, that everyone is crippled in spirit until they're healed by the Messiah. He knew that it had taken his body breaking to know just how broken his soul was. He knew that during all his years of being a star, through all his tr struggles, all his trials, in his darkest hour, God had been preparing for the advent of Messiah in his heart. Two decades after his stroke, a disaster which he probably now saw as a stroke of fortune. Blind, fat old George lay dying. He had performed his most famous work, Messiah, for the very last time that very week. And while he lay dying, what did old George know? What was his comfort? That he had been redeemed, that his Redeemer was alive, was life itself, that Messiah was the one who had opened his eyes, had made him whole, 
that the trumpet shall sound and that Messiah will then restore his broken body. Old George knows, and so can you, that you shall reign with Messiah together forever and ever. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, as we prepare to light our Advent candle, I pray that you would remember, help us to remember the light of Messiah in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now earlier I told, I told a true parable about the spiritual awakening of a famous man, old George Frederick Handel. He was a composer who lived exactly 300 years ago. Now at such a remove, and with a man who didn't set down his innermost thoughts and words, of course, it's hard to know exactly what happened in old George. Was he converted in the same sort of way that ugly George Whitfield was, or strangely warmed as John Wesley of Oxford described his experience within a few short months of Handel recovering from his stroke? We don't know. That is, we don't know whether old George felt duty-bound to attend church but had never truly felt the grace of God or the Holy Spirit's presence before his stroke. We don't know whether to use a turn of phrase that another contemporary, Jonathan Edwards of America, had preached a couple of years before. We don't know whether the divine light had been imparted to him at a point earlier, maybe even in childhood. And in that moment of his stroke and the death of his friend, he was simply given a new sense of joy and purpose and zeal. But regardless, we can be certain that God did work powerfully in Handel's heart. God saved old George. And God fanned his faith into flame. That much is completely obvious to me, especially as a musician, as someone who knows the biases of Handel's artistic world and what it would have meant to be brought to spiritual life in that social environment. I know the temptation old George must have faced to downplay his faith, to avoid seeing the embarrassment of his colleagues when he ceased making idols of his art and of his lifestyle. I know how thorough the change in him must have been to risk jeopardizing his reputation as a star, as an artist, as a man of the world, to make art that didn't fit in to that world, either in the theater or in the church. The Holy Spirit commonly inspires people to break the usual constraints, but it often comes at a personal cost. What's less obvious but no less certain is how God prepared old George's heart for his spiritual awakening, and also how old George himself prepared, maybe without even knowing that that's what he was doing. God prepared Handel for his moment of crisis and awakening through godly friends, friends we know about, who we also know encouraged and influenced him along the way. 
God also prepared him by giving him a godly mother and good teachers. And of course, God used the stress of his work. God used his stroke. God used the death of his good friend to bring on the crisis and kindle his awakening. All these things were obviously outside of old George's control. But he himself also prepared for this moment, perhaps unintentionally, by always making sure he was at church. Not shying away from those who would challenge his pride and mold his faith. He prepared through a lifetime of studying the Bible, through a lifetime of prayer and of participation in worship, even if it was sometimes half-hearted. All these things prepared him to react the way he did in his moment of crisis. Old George could have twisted with rage and with bitterness as his gifts were seemingly taken from him. Many have. Most probably do. He could have turned his back on God when it seemed that God had turned his back on him. And when his condition showed improvement, he could have breathed a sigh of relief and pushed himself to keep going to cling to the fame that he had and to the position that he had. But instead, he allowed God to stop him in his tracks. He seems to have realized that neither his gifts nor career success were really things that he could, could control. Instead of powering through, he chose to pay attention. He didn't turn inward. He turned toward God. Even a few late years later, when he lost his sight, and he couldn't lead his orchestra, and we're told his spirits for a short time sank, he allowed himself to be led onto the stage, leaning on the ever-loving arms of his Savior, Jesus. It's this sense of preparation to which I want to direct your attention this Advent season. Let every heart prepare him room, we sang earlier. And the passages that Pastor Mark read for us at the beginning of our service, these verses that informed my parable and which inspired Handel as he wrote his Messiah, all have to do with preparation. That's what the Advent season is all about. We are, as Isaiah's voice in the wilderness cries out, to prepare the way of the Lord. We are, to use Malachi's words, being prepared. The Lord himself sending messengers among us who prepare the way for him. Isaiah looked beyond a future catastrophe to the comfort that God would eventually give to his broken people. Malachi lived in the time that Isaiah foresaw and denounced the corruption and half-heartedness of the spiritual leaders of his day. And he projecting, projected the Lord's coming into the more distant future. Well, that Messiah has now come. He's here. His spirit dwells in each one who has trusted in him in this room. But maybe you feel that you're in the spiritual wilderness, waiting for him to lead you back 
from exile. Maybe you've been hurt by corrupt or inept or lukewarm church leaders. Well, you may be close to the Lord. You may be far off. Either way, you too are being called to the work of preparation this Advent season. Maybe you aren't sure if Jesus actually cares about you. Maybe you're wondering why he seems so slow in showing himself to you. Maybe you question whether he even exists. It doesn't matter. Prepare. Pray expectantly. Get yourself out of the way. And worship him. Worship whether or not you feel he's near. Worship him, worship him as if you do feel him near. And as you perhaps once knew that he was. To those who know his nearness already, prepare the way of the Lord and your friends and your family. Pray for them. Engage them in loving and challenging conversations, just as David, David was telling us about earlier. Share the gospel. Invite them to church. Be a good and faithful parent and teacher and neighbor. Be a patient brother or sister, a kind friend. Ask gentle questions. Be prepared yourself to live transparently and uncomfortably. Show as well as tell. You never know when God will arrive on the scene and change everything. Prepare them in hope, in obedience, and in faithfulness. Prepare the way of the Lord in our church and in our culture. This means especially to pray. To pray alone, to pray together for the church and for the world. When Handel was starting out in the early 1700s, conditions in England, both within the church and in society at large, were notorious. The poor were being crushed, and a cool, self-satisfied sense of superiority, moralistic relativism, or rationalism, sorry, prevailed in the churches. But then on both sides of the Atlantic, people began to pray. They began to preach repentance, to cry out to God for revival. What we call the Great Awakening took decades of prayer and repentance for it to come, but come it did in New England, in Old England, and in Scotland. And if you include the massive influence that Handel's Messiah had and still has, and it was written, actually, at the revival's feverish height, maybe even unbeknownst to Handel, the Great Awakening was even more widespread than we usually understand it to be. God will, as Malachi says, suddenly come to his temple and remember as we've been learning this year, that means God will come to you individually, and he will come to the church as his body, his dwelling place, if we prepare in expectation and hope with extraordinary, ordinary faith. This Advent, we need to worship together. 
We need to pray together. And we need to labor and send out laborers. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. As a benediction, I'll read a short passage from Haggai. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house, my temple, shall be greater than the former. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Amen. Go in peace.